0: Thanks for listening, come back often, and feel free to add this podcast to your favorite podcast app or to iTunes. Now let's get to this week's lesson. 1 Peter chapter 2 1 Peter chapter 2 And I've not forgotten, I'm going to quickly go over what we did not finish last week and then begin this week talking about church. If you have your notes from last week, the first blank that was not filled in is a definition. The next few blanks are definitions. One of those, the first one, is replacement theology. I'm going to go over three of these terms very quickly, and then I'm going to discuss them, and it's going to roll into the uh, doctrine of the church. So, replacement theology: the promises that God made to Israel have been forfeited by Israel because of their unbelief. Therefore, Israel has been replaced by the church. That is a theological view. I didn't say it was the correct view. Didn't say it was the wrong view. Just telling you a term there. Process theology. The way I define process theology is God does not have eternal plans, but fluid plans that change with the actions of His creation. Some believe this because it is a hard concept for some to believe that God knows and allows evil to happen. Well, I think the Bible is clear that God is not surprised when evil occurs. And he is not surprised that Israel rejected his Messiah. He is not surprised that Christ was crucified. And he is not surprised when individuals reject the gospel. Some that have issues with that have come up and developed that term process theology. Another side effect or a a subcategory of process theology is called openness theology. Better known as open theism. Very prominent right now in a lot of theological circles. It's very similar to process theology. It is simply meaning that God has no idea what the future has planned as far as down to the details. He might have some, some good idea and understanding of what may occur, but he has not planned to planned it all out yet, and he is waiting on our actions. He doesn't know the future simply because it has not happened. And the bottom line of that is that puts us in charge. And in my opinion, abdicates God from His throne and therefore He is not God. So we talked about post-millennialism and all-millennialism last week and premillennialism, But we see openness and process theology can lend itself to post and all-millennialism. Not saying that all that believe in those views agree, certainly they do not agree with openness theology, but there are, you could travel down that road, there are some tendencies to do so. For the most, for the postmillennialist, God is waiting on us. Remember, we talked about the postmillennialist is believing that things will get better because people will be saved, and as more people are saved, therefore more Christians are in the world, and more Christians are in the world, therefore this world is becoming a better place. Those views were mainly um, pushed out into the church and. And advocated by people in the Reformation when they saw a great turning of God, and by the great awakenings uh, such as Jonathan Edwards and George Whitfield. So we see them understanding that the world is getting better, but we see the world as not getting better. Uh, we see the news, and we see a more global understanding of what's happening because of their acceptance of replacement theology now let me say replacement theology where the church has replaced Israel most reform thinkers most amillennialist and postmillennialist do believe that the church has replaced Israel the church is the elect of God not Israel so if that is the case God was using Israel but since Israel rejected God he had to change his plans and He therefore created the church. So I have an issue with that. And the issue is I, don't, I do not believe that God was shocked when Israel rejected His prophets of the Old Testament. And I do not believe He was shocked when they rejected the Messiah in front of them. And I think it is clear that God is still using Israel. John MacArthur puts it like this. If you come to terms with what God is doing with Israel, then you are on firm footing for understanding the end times and understanding what God is up to in establishing His kingdom. After all, 70% of Scripture is the story of Israel. So I believe that God is not done with Israel. Premillennialists believe that God is not done with Israel. Uh, We believe that God will fulfill His promises to Israel. So, why am I a premillennialist? I don't see the world getting better. I believe the Bible shows a millennial reign after a rapture, after the church is caught up with Christ. Now understand this. I do not believe the rapture will occur before the millennial reign because God would not put His church through a difficult time. I had uh, dinner with a good friend of mine this week, and we were discussing this, and I said, you know, my difficult times are getting the, you know, well, watching Alicia get the kids ready wears me out. And uh, (laughs) getting ready for church, you know, that's a difficult time. However, if you were to go to the first century and Peter is being crucified upside down and you were to lean over and say, Peter, do you think God would put his church through difficult times? He would be inclined to say, there's some difficult times. Yeah. Those of you that attended secret church, you saw where there are churches all across the world that only consist of a few people only consist of a few people because if they consist of more, they would be arrested. They would be tortured and in many cases would be killed. I think the church can go through difficult, difficult times. The issue is this. God in His sovereign wisdom and ordained ordained a millennium where Christ would reign. And I think Scripture, especially in Revelation chapter 20, is clear that that occurs after the church is placed with God in heaven. And we call that the rapture. So that is why I am a pre-millennialist. Now, let's get to this week. The church. So Peter writes in chapter 2, verses 9 through 10... I used a football analogy, down set, hut, hut, hike, because that's where the church is at. When the ball is hiked in a football game, the ball is in play. And the players on the field have certain duties to perform. They have to block. Some have to catch. Some have to evade a tackle. Some looked up and saw me coming at them. I'm, my, favorite, my favorite thing, I, was, I, I, I loved hitting people. And, uh, and so that was a great, football was a great sport. Now, I like baseball, but you couldn't hit people in baseball, at least not get in trouble for it. And so I like football because I get to hit people, and that was fun. And I wasn't a good enough fighter to be in UFC, and that wasn't around back then. <laughs> so so you, get to, you get to evade the tackle, or you get to tackle, you get to block. So that's where the church is at today. We are evading the tackles of sin. We are blocking, helping one another, assisting, encouraging. We're catching the passes when those things, those opportunities to share the gospel are there, when those opportunities to minister to people are there, when those opportunities to fund missions all across the world come open, or for instance, uh, adoption, like we're going to be focusing on this Sunday here at our church those opportunities present themselves. We are catching the pass. We are out there on the field of play. And Peter says, who is this? Who is this? Who is the church? We are the church. And Peter says in 1 Peter chapter 2 that we are a chosen race. Who are the players on the field? Who are the members of the team? They are believers in the gospel. Believers in the gospel. Who is the church? Very simple. Very simple definition. Believers in the gospel. That is the church. And the gospel, as we learned in week one, is the message of good news. That Jesus, the Son of God, died as Paul wrote according to the Scriptures, was buried and rose again according to the Scriptures. a very short synopsis of the gospel, but very true. Isaiah... Prophesied that he would be pierced for his transgressions, he was crushed for our iniquities. the punishment was brought that brought us peace was on him, and by his wounds we are healed. Of course, the famous verse, John 3:16, that God so loved the world, that he gave his son, that whoever would believe would not perish but have everlasting life. That is the church, the believers of that. So can someone leave the team? Well, can Christ's sacrifice be undone? Can the pleasure of sacrifice become unpleasing to God? You see, we think of the cross as such a a devastating time, and it was. And and it was a gruesome moment in history. But the Bible says that God took pleasure in the sacrifice of Christ, and that Christ became obedient, obedient even to the point of death on the cross. And as the, the sweat from our Savior rose through the atmosphere and into the heavens, and as the cries that certainly would have come out from His mouth echoed through the halls of heaven, Christ took pleasure that His Son was being crushed for sin, that it would be conquered. The depths, the depths and the lengths God would go to prove His justice and His love. Salvation, ladies and gentlemen, is not free. It costs God a lot. It is a free gift to us because He has paid that price. So, can you leave the team? The question is, were you ever a member of the team? Paul writes this in 2 Corinthians. Talking to the church, he says, examine yourselves to see whether you are in the faith. Test yourselves, or do you not realize this about yourselves? that Jesus Christ is in you unless indeed you fail to make the test. So the question is not can you leave the team. The question is were you ever a member of the team. So how many churches are there? Well, there are churches all over the world, but they are all members of the one great church. Turn in John to John chapter 17. John chapter 17, Jesus is praying there we call it the high priestly prayer, and he says in this prayer, just between him and God, alone, speaking with his Father, he says, "I do not ask for these only, but also for those who will believe in me through the through their word." That they—he's talking to us. In other words, he's talking foreknowledge here. He's talking about today. There will be more believers than just the disciples that were with him. I in them, and you in me, that they may become perfectly one so that the world may know that you sent me and loved them even as you loved me. So the early church came up in 381, the final version of the Nicene Creed, and they summarized the church as being one, as Christ was saying like this, that we believe in one holy Catholic apostolic church it's known as the four marks of the church one holy catholic apostolic church so what does that mean well one we obviously understand that even though the church is all over the world we are one body the bride of christ the bride of christ one body. We are holy because we are in Him. We are holy. Catholic. We are Catholic. Now, not in the term, as obviously as the guy with the white robe. Although, wouldn't that be neat to have a beanie hat? I mean, I've always thought, man, that would be cool. But it would be. <clears throat> so we're not. We're not in that Catholic church. But we're using the term Catholic as it is defined as universal. So the church is universal. It's not regional. It's not in Jerusalem only. It's not in the Vatican. It is all over the world, the church. And it is apostolic. We did not determine these beliefs. We did not invent these beliefs. As Jude wrote, these beliefs are handed down once for all to the saints. So we are founded on the teaching of the apostles Who walked with Christ? We are dependent upon the letters that the Spirit of God inspired them to write, the stories that the Spirit inspired them to research and write. So the question is, who leads the church? Who leads the church? Christ is the head of the church. So Jim went through Colossians several months ago, And Paul writes this in Colossians 1, right off the bat, writing to the church at Colossae, and he, being Jesus, is the head of the body, the church. Paul establishes very quickly, the guy that's in charge is Christ. Christ is in charge of the church. And under Christ are the elders of the church. Now, not elder as in age, but in office. Paul writes in Acts chapter 20 of the elders, writing to the elders in Ephesus. He's talking, I'm sorry, to the elders in Ephesus. And he says, pay careful attention to yourselves and to all the flock in which the Holy Spirit has made you overseers to care for the church of God. So they're overseers. So is a pastor an elder? Yes. Yes. A pastor is an elder. Pastor is only mentioned one time in the Bible, they're in Ephesians. But in the context of that one time, and in the context of understanding the, the term elders, we see that elder and pastor is the same, that they are given to the teaching and preaching of the Word of God, protecting the flock, guardians of the church. So, what is that other great church, that other great office in the church, the deacons. So are the deacons the boss? <laughs> Depends on what Baptist church you walk into. <laughs> are the deacons the boss? Acts chapter 6. We see this happening in the early church. And the twelve summoned the full number of the disciples and said, it is not right that we should give up preaching the word of God to serve tables. Therefore, brothers... Pick out from among you seven men of good repute, full of the Spirit and of wisdom, whom we will appoint to, his, to this duty. But we will devote ourselves to prayer and to the ministry of the Word. So the term there for serving tables is deacon. And so deacons are servants. Matt Perriman who worked for many years for Desiring God, John Piper's ministry that I mentioned last week. He's he's on his own now. He's he uh, he does have a degree in theology from Southern Seminary, but he is um, he's written two books and he's really not he's not in the church. He's not in a pastoral role uh, role. He's in a in a layperson's role. He writes this about deacons: the basic task of deacons then seems to be helping those in need of food water and clothing as well as ministering through the hospitality and welcoming. So the role of a deacon is to serve and the role of an elder and pastor is to teach and preach and protect the flock. So what is the church to do? What is our passion? If that is our leadership, what are we here for? What is our passion? Our passion is love. Our passion is love. The church's great passion is love. The great, command, the great commandment in Matthew, Jesus says, or as He's asked, Teacher, which is the greatest commandment in the law? And our Lord replies, You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your mind. This is the great and first commandment. And the second is like it. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. The great Charles Spurgeon writes this, "...the purpose of the church not for yourself, O church, do you exist any more than Christ existed for Himself." Christ did not exist for Himself. He gave Himself to God, becoming obedient to the point of death that we may be saved. And in that role, in that model of our Lord, we are to model that by giving ourselves to love. First, the love of God is the greatest commandment. And we don't love God with just anything. We love God with everything. Everything that we are about is for the love of God. And in that, we love our neighbor. So what is... That's the passion. What is the mission? What is the mission of the church? Boy, isn't that an easy question. Those at Secret Church, I'm sure you heard David Platt talk about it. The Great Commission... Matthew 28, Go therefore, make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father, and the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Listen to this, saying, Teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you. And behold, I am with you always, even to the end of the age. So the term is to make disciples. Now, is making disciples meaning for us to make believers? Well, certainly we go out and we spread the gospel. Absolutely. But making a disciple is not making a believer. See, if, if someone is saved because of George Jackson, well, they're not saved. They're saved because of the, the working of the Holy Spirit in their heart. See, God's, God is in charge of saving people. You and I are not in charge of saving that's God's business. That's a great relief for us. <laughs> That's a great that takes the burden off of us. Your dad that has rejected Christ, that is not your fault. Your spouse that you pray for that has rejected Christ, that is not your fault. That coworker, that loved one, that is between them and God. You are not responsible for their salvation. You are responsible for living the gospel out to them. You are responsible for sharing the gospel. You're responsible for loving them, but you are not responsible for saving them. However, we are responsible for making disciples. Now we're on the hook. (laughs) We are on the hook. We are to make disciples. The main aspect of the Great Commission, we get really focused on the the term going and spreading and evangelizing, but I think the main aspect is found in verse 20, teaching them. And if there's something I think the church has failed in the last 100 years, it is teaching. It is teaching. If you were to go back and look throughout church history, education was fostered and protected and grew under the church. The only light in the dark ages was the church. We were the ones that taught people to read. We were the ones that educated. We taught math and science. We taught the history of the world. It was the church. and We have greatly dropped the ball on doing that. So are we making disciples? I put this in your quotes. Now this uh, in, in your notes, this is a quote from me and this and $1.50 will buy you Coca-Cola. But <laughs> no one will read or care about this outside of this room and after today you won't either. But I wanted to say this. <laughs> I wanted to wanted you to read this today because this is how I feel about discipleship in the church. I say one of the greatest losses of the church is past... Hundred years is the loss of teaching believers. Therefore, if we're not teaching, we are failing to make disciples. We are products of our culture, and it is that culture which has come to direct the way we worship, teach, preach, evangelize, and even organize the local congregation. Instead of impacting the culture, we have allowed it to impact us. The two greatest victims of the church embracing this course of action have been the church's mind, followed by the church's worship. There are many things that we can see done in culture that are good, that we can utilize to spread the gospel, to learn the gospel. But we have dropped the safeguards and the walls around the church, and we have allowed culture to dictate to us Instead of looking at those things and utilizing those things in the culture, we have just forfeited our leadership and allowed the culture to dictate to us what we are going to do, how we're going to act, how we're going to worship, how we're going to learn. We've handed it over. We've got to get it back. We have got to get it back. So I mentioned the worship there, and I just want to say this quickly on worship. In the church, it's one of the obviously the main things we do. But the church worship service was not intended to be the primary place of evangelism. So most churches Sunday morning, we're told to invite people, invite people, invite people. Come to church. Bring them to church. That's good. Absolutely nothing wrong with that. But I want you to understand that the primary focus... Of worship is that we, as believers in the gospel, worship our God, and we learn about our God. We are taught the Word of God, and we fellowship with one another, and we encourage one of one another, and then we go back out. The Great Commission, after all, says, and this is your last blank blank there. The Great Commission says, "Go." Not when they get here. (laughs) Go. When we're here, if somebody got saved, praise the Lord. But the New Testament model, I know it's the Bible, and I have an issue bringing that up sometimes, but (laughs) the Bible's New Testament model is in the workplace, in the home, in the organization, Teaching and leading and proclaiming the gospel of Jesus Christ and leading people to that gospel through the Spirit of God. That's the New Testament model. It's not when they come to the house church for worship. We see them going out into the culture, engaging the culture and spreading the gospel. So, it's been a fun three weeks. Jim told me to be done at 9.45, and I I was raised to respect my elders. (laughs) So I'm going to be done at 9.45. (laughs) I tell you, I just love old people. Yeah. So, the, the last three weeks we've studied the gospel, we've studied the end times, and we have studied the church. Boy, I tell you, there's a lot of questions about some of those, and there are certain aspects that are pillars of the faith, immovable pillars of the faith. This one thing we know for sure, Christ is returning. Christ is returning for His church. For those whom He has predestined to be conformed to the image of Christ, to the, to the elect that He has foreknown, He is coming for the church. He's also coming to judge. He is coming to judge sin. He is coming to judge those who have rejected Christ, those whom have long ago been handed over in His eyes as He has foreknowledge of. So, question is, Where will you be? Will you be gathered up with the church, a member of the Bride of Christ, or will you be judged as a person that rejects the gospel? And I tell you, I plead with you, though you may have grown up in church, though you may have just walked in, I want you to know that Christ died for the sins, that your sins, that you may be saved. And I want you to know He's not left you alone, church. John, as I said last week, looked up and saw God on his throne. And God said, John, it's done. Understand, I'm the Alpha and the Omega. I'm the beginning, I am the end. Those who thirst, I will freely give from the water of life. Man, that's an encouraging word as we go out, isn't it? All right, let's pray together. And then you can lean in your tables and then... I'm five minutes early. I should get a cookie from Jim. All right, let's pray. (laughs) Heavenly Father, thank You for saving us. Thank You for going so far to the cross to forgive us of our sins. And Father, thank You that even though You crushed Your Son, Father, even though the nails pierced His hands, Father, that that was not the end. That the power of love was put on display in a garden tomb. And He is no longer there, but He has risen, and He is seated at Your right hand, interceding for us, that You do not see us in our sin, but that You see His sacrifice. Father, it is in that sacrifice we live. It is in that sacrifice that we go and that we take courage. Lord, as we go out into this world, we pray that You would you would just open up opportunities for us to share your love. Father, there is nothing more in sharing the gospel than sharing the love that you have had for us. Father, we pray that we not forget that. We pray for our services this week. And Lord, uh, that you would be with us, your church, to encourage us, to teach us as we worship you. We pray all these things in the name of our Christ, our Lord and Savior. Amen. Thank you.